I'm Amy Lattimore. And I'm Brian. We are co-founders of With Wellness, a wellness club for employees, where our mission is to create space for you to learn to care for yourself and those you love. Welcome to the Priorities Podcast. In a world filled with ongoing, high stress, and tough demands, how do we begin to prioritize? I mean, like, for real, prioritize who and what matters most. Throughout this podcast, we'll speak to everyone from expert practitioners and academics to everyday moms and dads. During each conversation, we'll look for observations, learnings, and insights to help us all to prioritize and deprioritize when and where we need to. And while we can't prioritize for each other, we can prioritize with each other. So with that, let's get into this episode. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Dr. Joy Harden Bradford. We'll be discussing how to find a therapist and what to look for in your search, as well as the intersection between culture and wellness. Let's get into it. Dr. Joy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to join you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, this is, I'm a little bit fangirling right now because I'm such a huge fan of all the work that you've accomplished and done over the last several years. So this is a huge honor. Really, really grateful. Thank you. So we're chatting about when finding a therapist is a priority, which I feel like is all the things that you've been working on, you know, over the last several years. And so would love to just kind of like take a step back and bring our audience into this journey of how this be- even became a mission of yours and kind of the genesis of Therapy for Black Girls. Mm-hmm. That feels like a very big question. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I am trained as a psychologist and a lot of my work in history is in college student mental health. And so I would always be running groups for black women on the campuses that I was a psychologist at and really loved outreach work. So a part of what we do as college mental health professionals is outreach. So we do workshops and go to classrooms to talk about different kinds of mental health topics. And that was always my favorite task. So I started Therapy for Black Black Girls after watching Black Girls Rock the award show in 2014. Um, And you could just feel the energy of the women in the room. Like it just felt incredible even through the TV screen. And so I thought, wow, it would be kind of cool to try to do something like this for mental health. Like how could I bottle up some of that energy for Black women related to mental health? So I bought the domain from GoDaddy that night. And I just started blogging on the site about, you know, like how to find a therapist. Like how do I even know what questions to ask this person? What kinds of things are important in friendship? Like just general kinds of mental health topics, kind of like the kinds of things I was already doing with the outreach presentations. And then I fell in love with podcasting. So I had a 45 to an hour commute to my job when I moved to Atlanta. And so podcasting kept me company. And so I fell in love with the medium and thought, oh, it would be kind of cool to add a podcast to the work that I'm already doing at Therapy for Black Girls. And my husband has experience in radio broadcasting. And so I was like, oh, well, I have a built-in editor, so this shouldn't be very hard, right? (laughs) And so, you know, I think the credit to great podcasters is that they make it sound really easy, that you can just like talk and it comes out as a show. Well, of course, we know there's lots and lots of hours behind that, right? Um, But I added the podcast and it really just kind of exploded. Like people were very interested in the conversations. I think it was a great time for podcasting when I started. So the podcast really kind of took off. And I also added the therapist directory 
Gregory. So the therapist directory and the podcast almost happened at about the same time because I kept seeing conversations from people around wanting to find a black woman therapist. Like there was just a lot of energy. And I thought we should have a place where like people can find these therapists. Like, you know, so many people have the same question. Why doesn't this thing exist? And so I started it as a Google Doc for people to kind of nominate their therapists who they had worked with and had good experiences with. And then it has grown to, you know, over 5,000 therapists now. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And I, I appreciate it so much because probably anytime I, I I think I've been to a bridal shower and a baby shower in the last like several months and they always ask, what's your advice? I'm like, get a therapist. That is, <laughs> <laughs> that is first and foremost, like get a therapist. But I also know that's so much easier said than done. Like, Wading through um, the therapist, trying to find the one that's a really, really good fit um, takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of patience. Um, talk us through kind of for you, like why why was it important for you to make mental health topics and um, access to, to therapy so um, so relevant and easy for particularly black women? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's just a significant amount of stigma that still exists related to therapy. So I love the idea of having these kinds of conversations at bridal showers and baby showers, right? Because I think for black women, like it is very easy. Like we see a sister who has like beautiful nails and we're like, oh girl, who did your nails? Or like, who did your braids, right? And it's very easy for us to like recommend a braider or like a nail artist. Um, And I want it to be as easy for us to recommend a therapist. Now, some people feel a little, you know, weird about sharing their therapist because they don't want to lose their appointment time. Right. But I want the conversation to be just as easy that we really kind of break down the stigma so that talking about who we see as a therapist is as common as we talk about who we see to, to get our hair braided. And so, you know, a lot of us don't come from families where lots of people have been in therapy or if they have, then it has not been seen as a positive thing. And so I think the therapist directory and the conversations we have on the podcast and the blog posts that we share really all help to kind of chip away at that stigma to help people understand that mental health is something that we all have and that we have to take care of, just like our physical health. Right. And so I think all of that really goes to breaking away that that stigma. Can you talk us through what we should be thinking about or considering when we're looking for a therapist? We'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, Amy, you know, you really kind of touched on it when you talked about like it can take some time, right? And we often think about finding a therapist kind of like dating, right? But but not, of course, because we do not encourage any romantic interest in uh, any of that with, the, with your therapist. <laughs> but it is in some ways the same kind of thing in that so much of what makes therapy successful is the relationship between you and your therapist, which means that you may have to see a couple before you find the one who really does feel like a good fit for you. And I want to encourage people because I know it's not an easy process, right? Especially when you're in pain and like maybe you've been thinking about it for quite some time. You really want to just kind of get started. But unfortunately, sometimes the first therapist you meet with is not going to be the best person for you. And it doesn't mean that they are a bad therapist or that you're a bad client. It just may mean that this person is not the right fit. So a couple of things that you want to consider when you're looking for a therapist are one, what are the things that are going to be most important for you to help you to feel comfortable in this space? So therapy is a very weird kind of interaction, especially if you've not had it before, right? Like you're talking to a complete stranger about some very personal things. And so what kinds of things will help you to feel comfortable in that space? So for a lot of people, that means they want somebody who matches them in some way. So whether that be cultural identity, sexual identity, gender presentation, like all of these different things, whatever will make 
make you feel comfortable is what you should search for. So a lot of people ask, like, oh, do I really need a black woman therapist if I'm a black woman? Well, you don't need to. You don't need that. But if it feels important to you, then it's okay to have that as a criteria that you set for your search. Um, So that's one. Um, You also want to think about whether you're going to be using insurance to pay for it. Are you going to be paying out of pocket? Are you funding it some other kind of way? Um, Because some therapists are in network with insurance and then some therapists are not. And so you don't want to fall in love with a therapist, so to speak, and then find out like they don't take your insurance and then you're disappointed. So I definitely encourage people to look at that ahead of time. And then you also want to look at what's the therapist specialty area. So you may find a therapist that you think is great. Like maybe you watch some YouTube videos and you're like, oh, I really like the way she presents. But if they don't have specialty and expertise in the thing that you're coming to therapy for, it may not actually work because they may not be trained in the way that you need them to be trained. And then you want to pay attention to whether the therapist offers a consultation for a lot of therapists. So a lot of therapists will offer like a free 10 to 15 minute consultation where they will answer any questions for you. You can learn a little bit more about them. And they're also learning about you because as a therapist, we also want to make sure that you have a good experience, right? And so if you talk to me on the phone and I can kind of tell like, you know, I don't think I'm trained for the kinds of thing that they're bringing in or I actually feel like a colleague would be a better fit. That's a part of what we're listening for in that consultation as well. So if the therapist offers a consultation, then I definitely encourage you to take them up on that so that you can get a little bit of a better fit for how they work and who they are. Um, Lots of therapists have websites and social media channels and YouTube channels and all of these things. And so it is possible for you to do pretty good research, I think, on a lot of therapists before you even sign up for that first, you know, the first session or for the first consultation. So do your research before you decide on someone, but also be open to the idea that even though you done all this research and you think that they may be a good fit, they might not, right? Like in the first session, you might be not super comfortable or like, I'm just not really feeling this. But you do want to give yourself time to kind of get over the jitters of like this just being a new experience. But I think within the first three sessions, even if you're not fully comfortable, you can tell, I think, if there is like a synergy there, right? Like, can you see yourself being more vulnerable in this space? Eventually, do you think that you can get to a place where you'll be able to share more? Even if you aren't yet, I think you can tell whether the person kind of creates a space for you that feels safe and comfortable for you. I'd love to hop in with a quick question. Going back to culture and stigma and the point that Amy brought up around the bridal uh, or baby shower. Can you talk to us a little bit about where do you think since 2014, where we are presently culturally around stigma as it relates to finding a therapist and mental wellness. It feels like there are a few things that have happened that make things a bit more socially acceptable, but it also feels like there are challenges that continue to persist. And so would love to just get your thoughts on where we are and then maybe the things that you think need to happen culturally for us to continue to embrace different pathways to healing and specifically with therapy. Mm-hmm. That's a great question, Brian. You know, I definitely think we have come a very long way since 2014. So one of the things that I think that has been most impactful for us culturally to kind of move these conversations forward is the amount of celebrities and public figures who have come forward to talk about their own struggles with mental health and their own experiences with therapy. So Meg The Stallion just launched this whole platform for her community to connect people to services. Her whole album, her new album, is a lot about mental 
mental health, like it's called traumazine, right? So she's talking about her own experiences with mental health. Michelle Obama and President Barack Obama talks about going to a marriage therapist. Kid Cudi has been vocal about his own experiences. And so I think every time somebody who has that kind of platform, who a lot of people know, comes forward to talk about their own experiences, it makes it a little bit easier for somebody else to see themselves in that story. It makes it easier for people to realize like, oh, we all have struggles. Like money doesn't take away the struggles you might have with mental health, popularity, celebrity, like it is an equal playing field in some ways. And so I think those people and lots of others who have come forward have really help to chip away at stigma. But I also think that just common people, right? Like non-celebrities will get on Twitter and talk about what they learned from their therapist or their latest appointment with their psychiatrist. And so I think that there is just more a spirit of sharing and more normalizing that this is something that we have to pay attention to. I'm just really excited and, and honored to kind of be a part of that conversation and excited that so many people are feeling more comfortable sharing about those things. I love that sort of answer of sort of got this visual of it's almost like um, people have their own communities. And so where we are culturally is that there's so many subcultures, right? And so if the more that you find out and see that other people are being proactive about their healing at these sort of different identities, it sort of creates more openness, more vulnerability, more safety for people to seek out help. One question that just popped to me as I'm, you know, I'm looking at your username here with Dr. Joy. Can you tell us what therapy looks like when it's a therapist who's seeking a therapist because I feel like Ooh. you know you, you know <laughs> I, I I've done some pop sociology so like I think I know some mental models I know some frameworks and so I come in you know with my arms crossed like you know you better impress me he, he tries to therapize me, uh, Dr. Wait Joy. a minute, wait That's a minute. Don't put me under the bus this early. Come on now. I'm just a husband who loves his black wife. Oh, gosh. So can you just talk to me about getting back to the subject, therapists, and when they get in the room with another therapist, what does that actually look like? Can you bring us in to that yeah, yeah, that's such a great question. Um, you know, I think you hear this with like physicians and like other people, like we don't always make the best patients, right? Because we come in like like we've been trained in similar ways to the person that we're seeing, right? But I think at least I have been surprised. So I have my own therapist. I have for a very long time. I have been surprised by how easy it is for me to kind of turn that off immediately when I'm in my own session, right? Because it is me using that time for myself as opposed to all the rest of the work that I'm doing. Um, now, granted, you know, I'm sure it didn't start that way. I've been in therapy for so long that I don't quite remember. But of course, you know, there is like with anybody, like some feeling it out and like, okay, I can kind of see where they're going with this question and, you know, that kind of thing. But the interesting thing is that if you find yourself doing too much of that, or if the therapist picks up on you doing that, then that becomes a part of the therapy, right? So it becomes, tell me about what it is like to see another therapist and what's this experience like for you? Um, the other thing is that a lot of therapists almost kind of create the specialty for themselves as the therapist who sees other therapists, right? So, because a lot of us, you know, especially with the work that I do, like I know a lot of therapists. And so in finding my own therapist, it has been kind of important to find somebody who's not as connected, you know, who I'm not kind of seeing out and, you know, about all the time. And so a lot of times it happens because of word of mouth referrals. And so certain therapists kind of end up being the ones that a lot of therapists go to. And I think that they then kind of develop this specialty around the confidentiality and 
in, you know, when we were in person, like having different exits so that you don't like necessarily run into colleagues in the waiting room, you know, like all of those kinds of things. So it can be a little, I think, tense and maybe a little stressful in the beginning. But I think eventually you realize this is my time and, you know, you want to use it for yourself. So you mentioned a few moments ago around this idea of finding a therapist is like dating. And what I want to understand from you is two things. One, how do you break up with a therapist? And then number two, how do you, I'm trying to figure out how to put it, but you know, when you've like been in a really great relationship and then essentially how do you, I've had a really great therapist and when I, I'm in the process of trying to find a new one, I'm like, ah, but they're not her. And so, like, I'm comparing <laughs> everyone to this really amazing relationship that I've had, which isn't really fair for the other therapists. But, yeah, w- what are your thoughts? How do you break up with a therapist? And then how do you find a new one after having a really, really great experience with one? Mm-hmm. Those are great questions, Amy. So one, I love this question about breaking up with your therapist because I want more people to know that it is completely OK. Right. Because I think a lot of times with the stigma and I think, you know, just as a community, sometimes we have issues with authority. And so this idea of like telling somebody I don't like this or this person, you know, kind of knows more than me. And so it feels uncomfortable. But it's actually a great exercise in assertiveness and like really asking for what you need and want out of a space. And so as therapists, we know that breakups are a part of the process. And so if you find yourself, you know, working with a therapist and you're like, "Eh, I just don't feel like I'm getting what I need, even if it's somebody that you've seen for a while, right? Like there can be the case where you work with a therapist for a while and you kind of plateau, like you've done as much as you can with this therapist and maybe you need somebody different, you need a different modality. And so the, the relationship has to end. So my advice, is to not ghost your therapist unless something like crucial has happened, right? So if there's been like a racist comment or, you know, somebody tries to romantically advance at you, that I think in your own best interest, you may want to just remove yourself. But if it is, I've outgrown this person or this space doesn't feel as comfortable for me anymore, or, you know, something that you want to tell your therapist, or even if you don't want to tell them, if it is not, uh, you know, like a racist kind of situation, I think that it is a great, again, exercise in assertiveness for you to actually have this difficult conversation with your therapist and to tell them, you know, I've really appreciated the work that we've done, but I feel like I need something different at this point. Because a couple of things. So again, it is a good practice for you to have a difficult conversation because we often avoid those. And the therapist is the best person to have these difficult conversations with. So I think it's great practice. And also they may be able to refer you to a colleague who may be a better match in terms of whatever else you're looking for. So if you've done what you can with me and you're wanting to maybe do EMDR work or do something different, I likely have colleagues I can refer you to who I can give you a warm handoff to so that it doesn't feel as hard as like the complete start over. That's my biggest suggestion is to not ghost your therapist and that it is okay to want to end the relationship. You're entitled to that, but do try to have that conversation if you can. Your other question was around kind of comparing your new therapist to your old therapist who was great. And I think that that's completely fair, right? And it is like a dating experience, right? Like you have a breakup and then the new guy you date is not as exciting maybe as your old partner. So that happens because it's an authentic relationship. And so one, I would just like, 
like you to kind of celebrate the amazing connection that you, it sounds like you had with that first therapist. It sounds like you felt seen in that relationship. It was a really good connection and y'all likely did a lot of good work together. So you should be credited for that because you were able to do that thing, which is not always easy. And to maybe talk about that with the next therapist, right? So if I get a client who I'm seeing because they moved, right? So therapists are licensed by state. So, you know, if you saw a therapist in California and she's not licensed in Georgia, then you can't, you can't stay with her, right? And so if I have that kind of a situation, I'm going to ask about your old therapist and tell me what you really enjoyed and make space for you to do some grieving, right? So again, you know, grief is not just about like the loss of a loved one because of death. We also grieve experiences like this. So the grief that comes from working with a therapist who you really enjoyed and you didn't want to end the relationship, but you had to. And so how can we talk about that and how can we use that to then start our relationship? So I think your, your new therapist will likely ask about it, but if they don't, then I'd encourage you to talk with them about it and let them know that you're sad or that you didn't want to change. And then they will likely create space for you to actually talk about what it's like to miss them and what it's like to work with me now and to kind of see, you know, okay, what kinds of things can I borrow from that person? Like what really helped you to feel supported and, and affirmed in that space? And will you be able to have that same thing with me? I love that. How often should we be going to therapy? Like, I always wonder, like, okay, my problem solved, I stop. Or is it supposed to be, at least how it's depicted on television shows, it's like an ongoing relationship. Like you continue to go for years. You, you said you haven't been in therapy for years. So like, how do you know when you should keep going? And how do you know when you actually... It's okay to take a pause. Mm -hmm. So I think it's always okay for you to take a pause. Like this is a voluntary relationship most of the time, right? Like there are definitely some situations where therapy is mandated, but for most people, this is a voluntary thing. And so if you're feeling like, you know, I want to take a break, then it's okay to honor that. But it really is individual. So a lot of people will start off with like weekly sessions, usually or biweekly. You go for a while and then maybe you transition to biweekly if you started out as weekly, or maybe you, you go in for a particular problem, right? So let's say you're experiencing panic attacks. You work with the therapist for eight to 10 sessions. You realize, okay, I've learned how to manage this. I feel like I got what I needed. You're, you you know, that may be a sign to you that I've, I'm done here. But what often happens is that people will come in for one thing, right? So you come in for the panic attacks. Maybe you do some work around that. And then you realize there's also all this other stuff with my family, or there's also all this other stuff about being entrepreneur. There's also all this other stuff about parenting, right? You really realize that you just really value that 45 to 50 minutes and then you see people stay beyond whatever that presenting concern is. So sometimes you will just kind of stick with it. Sometimes people will kind of, you know, do it kind of like problem based, right, or related to a, a specific set of symptoms. So you work through the panic attacks, you stop, then maybe you have a breakup, you come back, you know, like that, that it really kind of depends on what is going on for you personally and what your therapist policy is, right? You know, because it could be that you take a break and then they're their caseload is full and they can't necessarily take you back when you want to come back. So that's something else to keep in mind, too, is that, you know, even if you want to go back, there may not be space for you. So I think that's also why a lot of people kind of continue because they really just want to kind of keep their space for anything that may pop up. And they just really appreciate having that time. So I know a lot of the work that you do is really at the intersection of mental wellness and culture, which I I love, absolutely love. There was this hashtag going around or this whole like meme phenomenon going around where it was like red flags like what are the red flags of x y and z can you talk us through some of the red flags of 
a therapist or an experience that we should be cognizant of that can help us know, oh, actually, let me, you know, I know this isn't actually what I need. So yeah. how would you how would you describe that? Yeah, that's a good question. So one, I think, and this doesn't happen often, but I've heard it enough to know that it does happen. Your therapy session should be about you. It should not be about your therapist. So if the therapist is spending too much time, you know, disclosing, and of course, sometimes we will use self-disclosure to kind of, you know, make you feel less alone, but it should be kind of managed, right? Like I should not be spending your entire therapy session talking about what's happening with my family and what I did with the weekend. Like that should not be the case. So if you find that your therapist is taking too much therapy time talking about themselves as opposed to you, then that I think is a red flag. Any kind of sexual, romantic, any kind of, you know, approaches that a therapist would make is an absolute red flag that should not ever be happening. Also a space that makes you feel like you have to kind of question your reality, right? So I've heard from a lot of Black women that they will be in spaces often with non-Black therapists where the therapist will kind of question them around whether something actually happened the way that they said it, right? So because we are Black, there is an understanding of, you know, the old time old story around like being in a store and being followed or somebody kind of questioning your authority or credibility in a workspace, right? Like if you come into the session and tell me that there's no question in my mind that that happened the way that you said, but I've heard from other, you know, from other Black women that they felt questioned in their therapy spaces. And I don't think therapy is a place where you should feel questioned in that way. Now, we may want to help you gain some, you know, additional perspective and but it should never be the kind of situation where you're made to feel like that didn't happen the way that you saw it. So I think that that can also be a red flag for a lot of people. So there's a point. So a lot of the work that we do with wellness, particularly in the beginning stages, is around supporting our communities with wellness coaching and kind of access to these providers to support them. And at the height of the pandemic, at the height of kind of all the racial reckoning, quote unquote, that happened um, (laughs) uh, in 2020, I was on social media a lot. And I just remember having this feeling of like, how in the world am I supposed to support this group of people as a part of my company and stay in tune with what's happening culturally and protect my mental well-being? Because I think at that point I was like, this is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so would love your perspective on navigating that balance, particularly as people of color. There's so much that affects us in the world, whether it is about race or even just the pandemic or wars and, you know, missiles and all the things that are the news in and of itself. And my dad always tells me, he's like, but you need to watch the news every night. I'm like, ah, I can't because that's a lot. It's very stressful for me. (laughs) So yeah, I would love to get your perspective on how to balance that, that, that balance of like staying connected, but also maintaining sanity and like your mental well-being. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good question. And and I think it's hard, right? Because you do want to be informed. You want to stay connected. Probably a part of your work is it requires you to kind of know what's going on so that you can know how to support your community. But I think it is a balance, right? Like there have to be some boundaries and some limits set to it. You know, I think about like my parents and my grandparents, like when we were growing up, the news came on at noon, at six o'clock, and then at 10 o'clock. Now we are, we have breaking news in our pockets 
person in our purses all the time because we're connected to our cell phones, right? And so, you know, I think when we think about like our parents telling us like, oh, you got to watch the news, they are thinking about it as that like one time a day kind of thing. And I think that that is where we should be. So I think a good limit to set for yourself is to check the news maybe sometime in the morning or maybe around your lunch hour. And then again, before you go to bed, but not too close to your bedtime because you don't want to be activated by some upsetting story that you're seeing. I think it's really important to turn off notifications as much as possible on your cell phone so that you don't get those breaking news alerts and all of the things that are happening because we are not meant like psychologically and I think physically to be able to kind of withstand the levels of like tragedy that I think we've been seeing, especially in the past, what, three, four years. And so psychologically, it is doing damage to us, you know, especially I think as black people, people of color, when you continue to see like police killing and people being brutalized in the streets and in in jails and all of those kinds of things. Like we can experience what's called vicarious trauma. So vicarious trauma means that you are kind of experiencing some of the symptoms as if you were there in person. And so when we see these videos pop up on our Instagram feed or we see them being played on the news, we are vicariously being traumatized by these situations. And so I think it's important to make sure you turn off the autoplay feature on your social media feeds as much as possible and not watch the videos, right? So I think a lot of people feel like in order to honor this person's life or to kind of stay committed or to, to show that you care, that you have to tap in and like watch all of these videos. But there's a very good way to kind of stay engaged and to do whatever you're going to do related to social justice and trying to move things forward without actually watching these videos, especially if you know you're someone who's very sensitive to that. And I think we should be sensitive, right? Like we should be sensitive to people being killed in front of our eyes. But because we've seen it so much, I think we have kind of become desensitized to some of this. And that's not a good place to be like we're humans, we're not robots. And so we should be kind of staying connected to how we feel around seeing somebody's life taken on a video. But I do think we have to we really do have to set limits around it, because if you are looking at it all the time, then you're really not giving yourself any space to kind of breathe, to disconnect and do other things so that you can kind of stay connected. So what needs to happen for us to stop these kinds of things from happening. I love that. Putting that strategy into place takes a lot of intention and work. And I know you kind of put together a few strategies of like what to do instead of uh, doom scrolling. And so, yeah, I'd love for you to talk us through that because that's part of something that I've realized that I have been known to do is like, I see the one thing and I'm just like, oh, 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 what, really? What? And I'm just like... <laughs> <laughs> I done got all worked up on something that I done seen yes. on, on the on the phone. And so, yeah, I would love for you to talk us through that. Yeah, yeah. So I love that term doom scrolling. I'm not sure who came up with it, but it feels like the perfect description of like what we've been doing for the past three plus years. And I think it's important to think about like the purpose, right? So a lot of times what's happening is that like we see this news and we see commentary, we see people we love and care about and colleagues talking about the thing. And so in some ways it makes us feel connected, right? To kind of be online talking about these things as they happen. Like you feel like you're a part of the conversation, you're a part of the community. But what that does is it really 
magnifies any emotional experience that you're having. So as therapists, we often talk about feeling your feelings, but only feeling them once. So let's say you run across some upsetting news story. It upsets you. Maybe you're tearful. You're, you feel your blood pressure rising, you know, all of that stuff. You felt your feelings. But what happens when you are then talking about it on Facebook and like participating in an IG live? Now you're also assuming all of the feelings of everybody else. Right. And so you're feeling the feelings multiple times. And so I think it's important to kind of, again, place limits on how much doom scrolling you're doing so that you don't kind of fall down that rabbit hole. So on the podcast, we have a session. I don't remember what number it is. We talk about building a coping kit. And so a coping kit is a box or a collection of things that you want to put together for those moments when like you feel your emotions getting too high. So in the case of doom scrolling, in the case of anything that just kind of makes you feel overwhelmed, you want to have a collection of items that you know can distract you or to kind of help bring the intensity level down on your emotions. And so that box of goodies could be something like a puzzle. It could be one of your favorite scented candles, a favorite lotion that you enjoy. Um, It could be pictures of loved ones that help you connect to times that feel joyful for you. It could be a favorite um, snack. So something that you can eat or taste is always good, as well as like some Play-Doh or like a stress ball or something like that. Um, And the idea is that you want to try to use all five of your senses. So, you know, if you are busy doing a puzzle, then it is less likely that you're actually still connected to whatever the upsetting news story is that you just saw. Right. So it may be kind of playing in the background, but your, your emotions and your feelings are not as intense if you're also doing a puzzle at the same time. And so, again, the idea is to have these things collected before you need them. Right. So you don't want to be in the midst of like a panic attack or, you know, a a high emotional space and trying to like, oh, where's that puzzle I had and where's that candle? Like you want to have these things put together so that they are there for you when you need them. This is me playing devil's advocate for a little bit. Are there any therapeutic benefits of kind of engaging in the conversation on social media? And so this is, (laughs) Brian's laughing because that would honestly be sometimes my excuse to him. He's like, Amy, why are you doing that? You know how that's going to make you feel. I'm like, but it makes me feel better to like be able to share my opinion and just kind of like get it out. Like, you know, the writing element of it and also getting people's like likes or whatever felt was a way for me to also process the experience. And so is is there any validity to that or was I really just like making that up? <laughs> No, I mean, what what you're describing is like an endorphin rush, right? Like when you're saying like, I feel better because I get the likes or I'm able to kind of work through whatever I'm feeling through the writing, like that can be soothing. But again, I think that there have to be limits to it, right? So, you know, if you realize like, okay, writing is something that helps me. Well, does it need to be writing done in public or could you write in your journal? Could you post something to a family group chat so that it's less likely to kind of go beyond people who know you, know your values, know where you're coming from you know so I think you have to look at in the moment it feels good but then what are the consequences right so do you then attract trolls who then you have to try to go back and forth with like are you getting unwanted attention you know sometimes things feel good in the moment but then when we think about the eventual consequences we realize like yeah that might not have been worth it so I think it is about knowing like if you know writing is something that feels important to you then what does writing look like for a way that feels therapeutic but also has some boundaries around it. So we talk about doom scrolling and social media. 
what other kind of time sucks, negative time sucks that are that could be impacting our mental health that we aren't really aware of? Mm. So I think social media is a big one because I think, you know, that screen report that we get at the end of the week, like I think was a game changer for a lot of us is like, oh, I'm spending a lot of time like just mindlessly doing this thing. So I think that that is definitely something to be aware of. But I also think something else that happens is this shiny object syndrome. As fellow entrepreneurs, you are probably aware of like this, like you see colleagues and people like doing really cool things and you think like, oh, I should be doing that too, right? Like I should add this new thing um, and that can be a time suck because it then takes you away from like the main thing right and so I think it's important to make a list of the kinds of things that you maybe eventually want to do but that they all don't have to be done at one time um, I think that that is another way that people get really wrapped up in and losing time is by kind of trying to do everything all at once talk to me talk to us about what brings you joy so for us a, a big part of why we started this podcast was to help people understand how they can prioritize or deprioritize the things that really matter to them. And for us, we know that mental wellness or wellness in general can feel very like mystical or elusive or just, you know, unattainable, inaccessible for folks. And one of the ways that Brian and I started to describe wellness is just aligning yourself with the people and the things and the energies that bring you joy. And so I'd love to chat with you about Dr. Joy, what things bring you joy? Um, and how are you, how do you, as a therapist, uh, you know, how do you even, pri- how do you begin to prioritize those things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it feels like that looks very different, like now than it did like four years ago, right? Which I think is also an important part of the conversation is that the things that bring you joy will change with time and also depending on the stressors, right? You know, so, you know, when it, before the pandemic, you know, when you could like just make an, a, a massage appointment and like feel better, like that was largely taken away from us at least for a significant amount of time, right? Um, And so thinking about like, how does it change? What does joy look like across time and across stressors? Um, So for me, you know, I have two little ones who are very active. And so it is joyful to me um, to kind of be trying to keep up with them and and all of the like different activities that they are doing. Um, So they're doing soccer right now. So I love to watch them play, but it also forces me outside, which is another thing that like, I know helps, but I don't always want to do it, right? Because, you know, if it's too cold, like it's gotten a little windy. And so, um, but it always helps to kind of just have a shot of sunshine on my skin. Um, and there's, of course, significant research that talks about like the the endorphins and things that we get because of sunshine. And so I think staying connected to being outside as much as you can is, is a really good strategy and physical activity. And it doesn't have to be like very strenuous CrossFit kinds of things, but just a walk around your neighborhood or a walk in the park, um, those kinds the things I also really enjoy and I find really help with my mental wellness. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That's super rich. I I myself have really, we've been doing a lot of research on the benefits of nature, particularly as it relates to kind of healing and restoring folks from burnout and things like that. And so I, I second that 100%. I have taken a strong liking to doing morning walks around the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and just like allowing the sunshine to just like cover me and listening to the birds and looking at the flowers. And I find that to be extremely restorative. So I I, I second that 100%. Yeah. And it really helps you beyond all of the benefits we get from like sunshine. It also reminds us that we're part of something bigger, right? I think when you are so singularly focused on like all the awful things that are happening in the world and like the things maybe that are going wrong in your own life, it can be hard to lose that perspective. 
perspective. And so I think when you're li- you're outside and you're listening to the birds, you're watching the wind blow, you, you feel the crisp of the air on your skin, like it helps you stay connected to something bigger, which I think is important. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Joy. This has been such a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming and chatting with us and helping us understand how to prioritize finding a therapist. You're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Where can folks find you and connect with you? Mm-hmm. So I am at Hello Dr. Joy across all social media platforms. Um, and my website is HelloDrJoy.com. So you can stay updated with what I have going on there. Um, and then if you want to check out more of the podcast or connect with a therapist in your area, you can find all of that at TherapyForBlackGirls.com. Well, this has been such an honor. Thank you again. And yeah, looking forward to hopefully maybe seeing you sometime in the Atlanta area. (laughs) I know, I know. That would be great. Thank you. Thank you again for being here and for honoring us with your time. This podcast is created by With Wellness, hosted by Amy and Brian Lattimore, produced by Circle Audio, and music and graphics will be linked in the show notes below. Before we part ways, we offer you a moment of peace. Take this next 60 seconds to simply breathe. As you go about your day, remember, you deserve to be prioritized.